Please turn with me again to the chapter 11 of the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 11. We're going to read from verse 27 to 36 to remind ourselves this portion of God's Word. We moved ahead a little bit last week because I wanted to use this section for a communion message. And uh, so I had reasons for moving ahead. Now we're coming back to it. Luke eleven twenty seven. And it came to pass as he spoke these things, a certain woman of the company lifted her vo- up her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore thee and the breast which nursed thee. And he said, Yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. And when the people were gathered thick together, he began to say, This is an evil generation. They seek a sign. You remember earlier, some said he cast out demons by the prince of demons, and others, a different group, said, We seek a sign from thee. They wouldn't go so far as the first group, but they were postponing their responsibility to respond to Jesus' message. This is an evil generation that seeks a sign, and there shall be no sign given to it, but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so shall the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South shall rise up in judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the farthest parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh shall rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. Excellent place to learn the importance of the Old Testament stories, right? If you don't know those, you have a hard time with what he's saying here. No man, when he hath lighted a lamp, puts it in a secret place, neither under a bushel, but on a lampstand, that they who come in may see the light. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when thy eye is healthy or sound, thy whole body also is full of light. But when thine eye is evil, remember they're an evil generation, (laughs) when your eye is evil, thy body is full of darkness. Take heed, therefore, that the light which is in thee be not darkness, if Thy whole body, therefore, be full of light. Having no part dark, the whole shall be full of light, as when the bright shining of the lamp does give thee light. Father, thank you for the time we can spend this morning. Speak to our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It would not be difficult to preach at least five or six sermons for the section I just read. I'm serious. We could do that with profit. All of it is vitally connected to the sections that precede it and follow it. And personal meditation and personal application goes very far here. I'm not going to wear you out by doing that. <laughs> because I spent a lot of time earlier in chapter 11. But I just want to mention that. This morning, we're preparing for the Lord's table. 
And we're asking the Lord to help us use this section to do just that. And our occasion dictates the selection of what we're speaking about and how we're talking today. This is a Lord's Supper service. And so we're seeking to apply the things Jesus is teaching there that we just read to that service. And I have four key words I want you to think about. Examination. Exhortation. Exaltation. Exclusion. Examination, exhortation, exaltation, exclusion. And those deal with the Lord's Supper. And we're going to think about the Lord's Supper and, and bring to bear this section on that. First, the Lord's Supper is a time for examination. We know that because of 1 Corinthians 11, 27, and 28. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread in the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment to himself. Because of what the Lord's Supper is, and because of what the Lord's Supper represents and does, Examination is essential. What what does it mean, examine yourself? Well, in 2 Corinthians 13.5, a later chapter written to the Corinthians, examine whether you're saved. Examine yourself whether you're in the faith. Remember at that first supper, Jesus said, you're clean, but not all of you. And so examine as to whether you're in the faith. Examination as to whether you're saved. Second, second, examination as to whether you're serious. And that's what 1 Corinthians 11 is talking about. The Lord's Supper is is something that's to be done thoughtfully and gravely and taken seriously and earnestly and sincerely. It's a very significant thing to do. And the Corinthians were entering into it carelessly and thoughtlessly. Uh, and so, without their hearts being affected, without their lives being um, challenged. Now, the people here in our text were not saved. They were religious. They were serious about their religion. But they were not saved. They were people who had outward reformation without inward regeneration. They had that external religion that they made the Bible a bunch of rules and they outwardly conformed to that. We looked at that last time. The Pharisees did that kind of thing. But they didn't have regeneration. And these people were postponing a decision concerning Jesus and asking for more evidence as if the fault for unbelief that they had was in him and not in them. And so, <clears throat> and if you gave them a doctrinal exam and you said, if you, do you believe in a personal creator God? They would say, well, yes, of course. And if you ask them, do you believe the Bible is the word of God? They say, absolutely. Do you believe that 
<coughs> the miracles from God uh, are, are genuine miracles. Of course. Do you believe in a personal devil and in demons? Yes, we do. Do you believe in a Messiah for the Jewish nation? Yes, we do. They'd get A plus on all those. Do you believe Jesus is the Messiah? Oh, no, no, we don't have enough evidence for that. Yet. We're willing if we have more evidence. If he would give us more evidence, we might be able to make that decision. But the problem is him. Not us. The problem is we need more evidence than he's giving us. It's insufficient. There are people that sit in church pews and you ask those other questions, they say yes to all of them. But when it comes down to salvation, when it comes down to admitting their sin and trusting in Christ, they're holding back. They may attend church regularly. They may even, you know, say they believe in the Bible and the personal creator and these other things. But on the, the real dealing with their soul, they haven't done it yet. I did that for a while. I know what that's like as a young person. But they were acting and thinking as if the problem was in Jesus rather than in themselves. And when I was postponing decision for the Lord, where would that problem come from? Lack of evidence? No, it came from my depraved heart. (laughs) My depraved heart does not want to do anything that God wants it to do. It's hiding from God, not running to God. It's avoiding God, not coming to God. And that's what's going on here by a religious group that said, we take the Bible seriously. They prided themselves in that. But it was all external. Today, there's a large group outside and even inside the church that are waiting for more evidence. Those that inside might never admit that, but that's what's going on. And um, I want to be cautious here about what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. Obviously, you want to make an intelligent decision, right? Obviously, sometimes people make an emotional decision or they don't even know what they're doing and they want to get baptized and they join the church. They don't have a clue what they're doing. Obviously, faith is in response to God's light. It's a step into the light of God's revelation. It's not a jump in the dark. It's a step into the light. So you've got to have some light from from God's Word and from the Gospel and from the truth. And it's legitimate to say, I want to read the Bible. I, 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 I need to study this out. I need to, like a Berean, and search the Scriptures and see if these things are so. Jesus had been doing miracles in front of these people for three years. He did miracles that nobody else ever did. And then he cast out this demon right in front of them. They all saw it. They all knew it happened. Some were saying it was of the devil. And this other group said, no, that's not right. We won't dare go there. Uh, but we, if Jesus is really Messiah, we need more evidence than just this. After he'd given three years of un- incredible evidence. These people were over their heads in evidence. They didn't need more evidence. They needed to use the evidence that God gave them. The problem with the fallen mind is it doesn't seek God. (laughs) Sometimes we think, oh, if I can just throw more evidence at people, they'll get saved. 
And that doesn't mean we shouldn't do that, but I'm saying if you think that's going to do it, apart from God's working in their heart, not going to happen. You can show all the archaeological evidence you want. You can show all the biblical evidence you want, fulfill prophecy, everything else. It's not going to happen if God doesn't break through. And men are responsible for that refusal. God holds men responsible. The Lord Jesus did not compliment these people. <laughs> you people are really sincere. You're really sincere. You want more evidence? I'll give you some. Here's some more. Here's some more. Here's some more. Here's some more. You, at least you're sincere. You're not like the other guys that's saying, I'm Satan possessed. So I'll throw more evidence at you. Um, again, these folks were reformed, but not regenerate. Outwardly uh, different, but inwardly empty. They were an empty house, like what those verses in uh, earlier say. The demon's out of it, but God's not in it. The unclean spirit's out, but the Holy Spirit's not in. And Jesus said the last state of them is worse than the first. And that's exactly what Peter's going to say about the false teachers in Second Peter 2. He uses the same language. And here there's a whole generation like that. They do not have inside-out religion. It's all outside the cup. We looked at that last week, right? Washing the outside of the cup, verse 39, inwardly dirty. Or as Paul puts it, they got a form of godliness, but they deny the power of it. They retain the form. I saw something online. It was This used to be more... Um, done more than it is, but it's still done somewhere. And there's, there's this preacher, he's... It was just goofy stuff that's going on today. One guy was standing on top of the pulpit. Now that's... I don't know what that does, but he seemed to think it was necessary. <laughs> Another guy was preaching like it was life or death about women wearing pants. Well, it's like dressing like a man, like women were... Now, forgetting that nobody had pants in those days... He's preaching against women wearing pants, and it was like life and death. Now, I believe women should look like women, men should look like men, and that's very important. But to this guy, I mean, he was really getting on it. And he was saying things like, God will not hear your prayer if you are wearing pants. <laughs> you know what that person was doing? Majoring. On minor things. Should women look like women? Yeah, I think that's pretty clear. In their dress and everything else. Is that a big thing to preach on as if it was life or death? I don't think so. And I found out that whenever anybody is stricter than the Bible or stricter in God, watch out for that group. There's a psychological and spiritual thing going on. If they're stricter than the Bible, you think, wow, they're really zealous. They're stricter than the Bible. That's just what the Pharisees were on everything. They multiplied rules. They were stricter than God on Sabbath keeping. It was always external. When people are stricter than God on some things, they are making up for being looser on God than God on essential things. There's something missing in that person's life. And they know it. And they're thinking, if I can be strict over here, God will overlook this over here inside of me. Not the way it works. 
Not the way it works. And so they did not have that inside thing that Jesus is talking about in verses 36, or 33 to 36. It was dark inside. It was dark inside. They had no light inside. Why? Because their eye was evil. Jesus is the light of the world, but light means nothing to blind men. Blind men are oblivious to the difference between night and day. And if you're spiritually blind, you can't tell what religion's right. And you're pretending the problem is Christianity hadn't got enough evidence or I've become a Christian. No, you're blind. It's a heart blindness. That's what 33 and the 36 is talking about. A lighting of the lamp. You don't put it under a bushel and the lamp of the body is the eye. If your eye is healthy, your whole body's full of light. Light enters your body through your eye. But when your eye is evil, your body's full of darkness. Take heed therefore the light that's in you is be not darkness. If your, if your whole body therefore be full, if, if thy whole body therefore be full of light, having no part dark, the whole will be full of light as when the bright shining of the lamp gives you light. So the reason for these folks' disobedience was not lack of evidence. The problem wasn't Jesus wasn't giving them evidence, but rather their own warped vision that prohibited them from seeing correctly. They couldn't even see Jesus correctly. Quoting Dr. Boyce. And Leon Moore said, When the eye is reacting to light in a normal manner, the whole body gets the benefit. So more signs are not going to help these people. And Joel Green said, By raising such objections in this discourse, Jesus indicates that the sign-seeking that uh, that was going to characterize this generation is not at all benign. It's not at all benign. It's not a benign practice, for it's grounded in a disposition that's contrary to the salvific purpose of God. I worry about Pentecostals, not just because I disagree with them about Sign gifts for today because they seem overoccupied with miraculous experiences. I don't believe it's healthy. And uh, it's too many, too many, and many of them do know the Lord, but too many don't have a respect for God's Word and submitting under the authority of God's Word. Now, I'm not saying we don't have the same problem. Sometimes we all do. But I'm simply saying I worry about people that think, oh, if God would just do a miracle, then I'd know He was there. God is there. He's already done His miracles. They're written in the Bible. Jesus is the miracle. The sign of Jonah is the miracle. And good lights are of little use to bad eyes. Let's put the problem where it is. We've got bad eyes because we've got bad hearts. My mother-in-law, Ethel May, many of you knew her. She's with the Lord now, having been saved at the end of her life. But she had macular degeneration. And it hit her fairly early. And I remember we met her in an airport at Atlanta one time, and she's coming from Florida, we're coming from Ohio, and she's walking down the she's walking down the, the airport, and I came right up to her and I said, Hello, and she looked right at me and didn't know who I was. Because Mac hits you in the center of your eye. 
And I realized, wow, I don't know how this lady gets around in airports except she'd done her whole life. She could see out the side, but she couldn't see in right in front of her. But when she came to live with us the last six years, my mother-in-law would read the paper with a magnifying glass with her eyes about that far from the page. Some of you watched her do that. Or the computer with her eyes one or two inches from the screen. Her sight was that bad, and she's going sideways. And I remember one time, after she'd been with us for a while, and her eyes had gotten worse, she's sitting at our dining room table with her back to the French doors. All the lights in the house are on. And she had these lamp, this lamp that was on, reading lamp, above her head that was shining. And she said, it's awful dark in here. We just let it go. But we knew the problem wasn't, there was not enough light. The problem was, her poor eyes were darkened. Where she couldn't see no matter how much light was with her. And you know what? She also had a spiritual problem. And Linda witnessed her for over 40 years. She could see political things very clearly. She could see other things very clearly. She had a very good mind, my mother-in-law. Spiritually blind. Until God turned the light on in her heart. Six months before she passed. Spiritual blindness is a real blindness. It's a real thing. And people say, not enough facts to make a decision. Not enough facts. They're intelligent about everything else. They know stuff. They understand stuff. But they can't get this. I. Howard Marshall said, Jesus is like a light which illuminates those who enter a house. There's nothing hidden about this light. Any lack of illumination is due to the recipient. If he has a sound eye, the light will enter his whole being. But if his eye is evil, no light will enter. That's why you need not just the work of Jesus, but the work of the Holy Spirit. And to say the work of the Holy Spirit is the work of the devil is very dangerous. You're insulting the person of the Godhead who is either going to illuminate your mind or not. You're rebelling against that work he is doing. Philip Riken said, People did not need any more signs. They needed to believe the signs they'd already been given. That's true of everybody in the world today. They don't need more evidence. They need God's work in their heart. Because apart from that work, they reject the evidence of creation, let alone the evidence of redemption. David Gooding wrote, The people who demanded another sign would not have been convinced by it or by any number of signs. Their seeking after a sign was not an indication of their willingness to believe it, if only adequate evidence were provided, but a rationalizing of their unwillingness to believe the perfectly adequate evidence they already had. How many people do you know are doing that today? They want different evidence than God has given them. 
and they've never even cracked the Bible to read it. They couldn't tell you how many books are in the Bible or anything, but they're waiting for more evidence. Now, this is quite important. The Lord's Supper is for examination, both about am I saved or not, or am I serious or not. And even Christians sometimes are not as serious as we should be. We might be saved, but we're taking it loosely like the Corinthians do. But one thing we don't want to be, and I'm, I'm not going to look, I'm not going to quote these verses. We don't want to be like that empty house of verse 24 and 27, an unsaved person. Nor do we want to be like that dark house, verse 33 and 36, an unsaved person. Nor like a full house, like the Pharisees are full of greed and wickedness. And not like the lock house of 52. We don't want to be that. There's plenty of things here we don't want to be. And it all boils down to examine yourself to even you're in the faith. If you're in the faith, even with your sins and your fallenness and your brokenness, you can come. If you're not, admit it to yourself and get saved by God's grace. So the Lord's Supper is a time for examination. Second, the Lord's Supper is a time for exhilaration. Exhilaration. Notice in verse 27, verse 27 of chapter 11, it came to pass as he spoke these things, a certain woman of the company lifted up her voice and said, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that nursed you. I'd say she was excited. I'd say she was thrilled. She'd never heard anything like this. Not just the miracle of casting out the demon, but the things that Jesus said after the response of the crowd gave. She wasn't with them. She is with Him. And she's doing the very thing that the Bible predicted. Mary understood all generations will call me blessed, and she's doing it. She was biblical but not balanced. She needs some correction there, as all of us do. But she was felt very privileged to be there. And to hear the wisdom from incarnate wisdom, Jesus Christ. And, she, and what a privilege it is to be among God's people. What a privilege it is to hear the word of God. And Jesus said, Yea, rather blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Don't forget the keeping part. <laughs> but give her credit for being excited. Give her credit for being thrilled. And so... Jesus had to correct that excitement a little bit and bring it down to where it should be. Blessed are those who are hearing present tense and are keeping present tense participle. Two, two present tense participles. Because those are people who are saved. Because God's done a work in their heart on the inside. You know... I remember uh, 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 there was a gal that came to our church. I remember this. I've, I've had this happen many times, but this is the one that's coming to mind now. She came from a mixed family. The dad was saved. The mom wasn't. And but she come to church with her dad. And she sat in church right back there where Tammy's sitting. I never said a word to her. She never said a word to me that Sunday. But I went home and I told Linda, I think she just got saved. So I called her dad. Yeah, she got saved this week. You know what it was? There was a difference in the way 
She was listening. It was obvious. Blessed are those who are hearing the word of God and are keeping it. And that girl's serving the Lord now. Uh, R.K. Hughes wrote about Jonathan Edwards and described his experience as a young man alone with the Bible on the banks of the Hudson. If you don't know who Jonathan Edwards was, he was the president of Princeton University and a great theologian and a great intellect, probably the greatest intellect America's ever produced as a theologian, and back in the 1700s, and very spiritual man in many ways. But this is what he wrote about his experience as a young man. I had then at other times, he's writing about his experience sitting by the river reading the Bible. I had then and at other times the greatest delight in the Holy Scriptures of any book whatsoever. Oftentimes in reading, in every word it seemed to touch my heart, I felt a harmony between something in my heart and those sweet and powerful words. I seemed often to see so much light exhibited by every sentence and such a refreshing food communicated that I could not get along in reading, often dwelling long on one sentence to see the wonders contained in it. And yet almost every sentence seemed to be full of Wonders. You know what that is? That's a product of the new birth. And even Christians in the beginning, Bible study is hard. I remember when it was so hard for me. But there's a moment where it all changes, right? It becomes food for your soul. You can't wait to do it. That's what he's describing. And RKU says, this is the way a healthy heart reads and hears God's word. Paul expressed, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to the Lord. Now, the Lord's Supper is for exhilaration. As we contemplate from God's word what Jesus has done for us, it is to move us emotionally, spiritually. It's for exhilaration. We are enjoying our Lord. Third. Oh, by the way, William Hendrickson said of this woman, what she said was good, it was wonderful, but not complete. And that's true, and that's why Jesus corrected her. But he didn't say what you said is wrong, he just said it's not enough. And that's another thing in the Bible. When we get under the hearing of the Word, we think we're doing okay, and then the Bible tweaks it and says, that's okay as far as you've gone, but there's farther to go and you get more insight. And it's a wonderful thing. Third, the Lord's Supper is a time for exaltation. Exaltation. This do in remembrance of me. Boy, I enjoyed singing those hymns. I didn't do it very well, but I enjoyed it. Exaltation. And I would rather forget counting the notes sometimes and, <laughs> and miss, miss that and sing it wrong than miss the experience of praising my Lord. He'll forgive me for that. You didn't, ca- you didn't hold that note long enough. 
The point is, enjoy the Lord. We are to examine ourselves whether in the faith, but we're, we are, that's true, but our focus on the Lord's Supper is not on ourselves, it's on Him, exalting Him. This do in remembrance of me. As the psalmist said, let's exalt the Lord together. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let's exalt His name together. Psalm 34, 3. That's what we do when we take the cup and we take the bread. Isn't that what it's all about? Exalting the Lord together. You can't do that the way God wants it done at home or by yourself. There's a special thing about being with God's people. Exalting the Lord together. Taking the Lord's Supper together. Um... Now, when we do that, I want you to look at chapter 11, verse 29. Something really powerful Jesus says. I wonder what this woman's reaction was to this. (laughs) I really do. (laughs) And when the people were gathered together thick, he began to say, This is an evil generation. They seek a sign. And there shall no sign be given it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also shall the Son of Man be to this generation. Now, he does not say, he does not say, he does not talk about what is happening right there when he's casting out the demon. He uses a future tense. He's not talking about his current teaching or his miracles. He's not talking about what is going on at that moment, but which shall be. It's very important to see that in verse 29. Jesus is going to be a sign. He's going to be a sign. It's not just the sign miracles he's doing. He's going to be a sign. It's a sign that's going to be given. It says in verse 34, as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also shall the Son of Man be. He's going to be that to this generation. He's going to be that. When's that happen? When he comes out of the tomb. When he comes out of the tomb. Remember, Jesus said, a greater than Jonah is here, and a greater than Solomon is here. He's going to be the sign. He is the sign of all signs. It's a, they asked for a sign from heaven. That's what they wanted. Casting out demons, that's good, but we want a sign from heaven. What did they mean by that? They mean make the sun sun stop as God did in the Old Testament or make a few stars skip around or casting out demons are okay. Well, maybe they meant like um, what Moses, God did through Moses, bringing the manna down from heaven. That's kind of what the people wanted in John 6. And Jesus did it, and then they wanted it again and again and again. And again, they kept following. Where's the, where's the next meal? We like we like this way of being fed. Or how about a sign from heaven like Elijah did? With the rain from heaven and the fire from heaven. By the way, the fire came first and then the rain, and that's significant. But the sign of Moses didn't convict Pharaoh. The sign from heaven didn't convict Pharaoh. From hail from heaven. And the sign 
that God did through Moses with the manna didn't really help the Israelites. They fed them, but they complained about it. And the sign of Elijah didn't move Jezebel except to anger. But they wanted a sign from heaven. And so what's Jesus saying? I'm the sign when I come out of the grave. That's it. I'm the sign from heaven. I'm the one that came down out of heaven. I am, I am the New Testament Jonah that the story of Jonah was pro, prefiguring and predicting. You want a sign from heaven? It's God himself coming down from heaven, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, and ascending back to heaven. How about that one? Who's going to top that? What sign could top that sign? What sign could be greater than that sign? The sign of all signs. This is a beautiful picture here. You want a sign from heaven? Here it is. It's coming. You're going to see it. The death, burial, resurrection of the God-man Jesus Christ himself. And so, uh, this is the picture. And by the way, just as Jonah's greatest ministry was not to Jews but Gentiles, after the whale spit him up, after he was rescued from death, Jesus' greatest ministry is not before his resurrection, but after it among Gentile peoples. It's been a standing sign for 2,000 years. The greatest sign that could be given was given to the worst generation that ever lived. The generation that crucified Jesus. They were there. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? They were. And that sign stands today after 2,000 years. This is the sign from heaven. The sign of God dealing with the very heart problem of the whole universe of mankind. When we take the bread and the cup, we are remembering that God dealt the biggest problem that could ever be in his universe, the problem of sin, and he dealt it at great cost to himself. And we exalt God for that because we know there's a God. We know because of he's not coming down here to tinker with little things. People get all excited about politics, who's in office. People get all excited about this and that, all the other problems. Their side issues. All this stuff about race. As one black pe- uh, preacher said, it's not race, it's grace. <laughs> it's not skin, it's sin. <laughs> Body Bakum, he's very right. But people get all excited about that stuff and they think everybody's got to be right on that or, and, and they make that like it's the main thing. You don't even know what the main thing is. There wouldn't be any racism in this world if it wasn't for sin. There wouldn't be any slavery. There wouldn't be any economic problems. None of that stuff. But with sin, you got that. So the Lord's Supper is a time for examination. It's a time for exhilaration, enjoying the Lord. It's a time for exaltation and just lifting up the Lord. This is it. This is it. The light of the world is Jesus. 
And it's a time for exclusion. And this gets to be the hard part. The Lord's Supper is not for everyone in every condition. All can come and observe, but not all should partake. Now, different churches have different ideas on this. Some have what they call closed communion. And if you're not baptized as a member of their church, you cannot take communion. That's closed communion. You can be in the same group, the Plymouth Brethren, had other Plymouth Brethren. They wouldn't let take communion if they weren't of their church, some of the Plymouth Brethren. We don't have closed communion in that sense. We believe in open communion. If you know the Lord is your Savior, you do not have to be a member of our church to take the Lord's Supper. You can be a member of another church and take the Lord's Supper. As long as you know the Lord is your Savior, you can come. But the Lord's Supper is not for everyone that it just showed up like a church social. Everybody can eat whatever they want. The eating and drinking is symbolic of what? Faith. It's symbolic of our faith, our personal appropriation of Jesus who died for us and rose again. You eat the bread, which is his body. You drink the cup, which is his blood. It's symbolic of something that's already happened. And if that hasn't happened in your life yet, we're thrilled you're here because the fact that you can't take it yet is for your benefit. It's, it's a visible way for you to understand I'm not where I need to be yet. And growing up in a church, my parents were Christians. There were many times I had to let the bread pass and the cup pass because I wasn't saved and I knew it. That was good for me. It was good for me to not be deceived. All right, I got Christian parents, so I'm in. So, Eating is symbolic of faith. And we, we're not into empty ceremonies here. This is, this is a spiritual time to spend together. And um, may God help us to admit things to Himself if we're not saved. Christianity is not a club. It's a church. And this exclusion is only on one thing. Am I... Saved or unsaved. And you examine yourself. Let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. But there's also. If I don't have. If I'm a Christian. Maybe I'm a Christian. Maybe there's something in my life that's not right. Maybe it's something this week that I haven't confessed yet. Better be confessing it. It's not that you've lost your salvation. But it's an insult to the death of Christ to take the Lord's Supper with unconfessed sin. And may God help us to do that too. So there's even some Christians that might not be in a condition where they're ready. And if that's so, it doesn't mean you're not saved. It just means, Lord, this is important and I failed you so badly and I haven't got it right. And I'm, I, I may need a little more time. I'm just going to let the cup pass. So that exclusion is good for a Christian who's slipped away. Now maybe you can say, all right, I know what I did. I said something this morning I shouldn't have said. I'll confess it right now so I can take the Lord's Supper. In the old Scottish churches, they took the Lord's Supper so so seriously, elders would go around and interview people. Uh, you still, you, you're fighting with your wife? You haven't made up? 
You're not taking communion this this month. That's what they would do. They would actually ask questions like that. And so, uh, I'm not saying we do that. I'm just saying, let a man examine himself. It doesn't say examined by others. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and eat of that cup. And by the way, the John Wayne movie, The Quiet Man, if you don't make, you don't shake this man's hand, the priest said, I'm going to read your name at Mass. <laughs> you know, that's what he's saying. You're not going to, you're not going to take, that's what he said. Would to God the Catholic Church would do that to Joe Biden over abortion. Or any other politician that claims to be a Catholic. But they haven't. They won't. Now, as we come here, it's very important. Uh, These are beautiful things. Not only the contrast between this generation and what happened with, uh, um, with past generations... We also see a greater than Jonah's here and a greater than Solomon's here. The queen of the south is going to come. She came to hear Solomon. You know she came a thousand miles. And she didn't use an airplane or a vehicle. That took months. And she just had reports that weren't totally reliable probably, right, about Solomon's greatness. She said, i got to get in on this. i got to see this. And it says the Ninevites and the Queen of Solomon are going to rise and condemn this generation. That's what it says. 31, the Queen of the South shall rise up in judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the farthest parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. She had lesser light and a lesser a lesser individual, but she responded. The men of Nineveh, those are the Nazis, the ancient Near East, the Assyrians, shall rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south had been dead for a thousand years when Jesus said this. The Ninevites that repented had been dead for centuries. And Jesus said, there's going to be a resurrection in Everybody's going to be together. And their repentance and their faith is going to condemn your belief. They responded to less light, less evidence than you. And were saved. What a shocking thing. (coughs) And that brings me back to this exclusion thing. Better to be excluded from communion than be excluded from heaven. If you're out, you want to find it out now, not on the judgment day. And on the judgment day, men of other generations and women of other generations who had less light and did more with it are going to be right there to condemn your unbelief with more light and more evidence. It's going to be more tolerable, Matthew 12 says, in hell for the people of Sodom and the people of Tyre and Sidon than for you. You people where Jesus did most of his miracles. Matthew 12. People say, I'm worried about the heathen. That's why I'm not a Christian. I'm worried about the heathen. You better worry about yourself. You've heard the gospel and you haven't believed. They're in better shape than you. Because they've never heard. 
It's good to be worried about the heathen, but I'm telling you, you better be worried about yourself and not use that as an excuse. There's going to be an exclusion, and it's going to be an awesome exclusion. Turn to Luke 13. I'm almost done here. Luke 13. 23. And then said one to him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter in at the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter in and not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us, he'll answer and say, I know not from where you are. Then shall you begin to say, we've eaten. This is interesting. Then shall you begin to say, we've eaten and have drunk in your presence. And you've taught in our streets. That's pretty good. We had you over for dinner, Jesus. I mean, really, seriously. And he'll say, I tell you, I know not from where you are. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you shall see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, that's the prophets they killed, by the way, and you yourselves thrust out, and they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. This is wonderful. We've got Andres here from South America. Jesus said from the south. We've got Asian people here from the east. We've got people from Europe, the west. I don't know anybody from the north here, but... Case, yeah, case, yeah. So, you know, God promised this ahead of time. Just like the, the, the Queen of Sheba came from the ends of the earth, people are going to come, and this is what's been going on for 2,000 years. And the last will be first, and there's first who'll be last. Boy, what, a, there's an, what an awful thing to be on the outside of that dinner. I've used this before, forgive me for using again, but when I read it, it struck me. And I'm not saying you do this to your kids, but I'm saying John Wesley's mother did it to hers. How many kids did she have? Was it 9, 11, or something like that? She raised all those kids, and the way she would pray is put her apron over her head (laughs) to get some privacy. But this woman actually said to her children, I'm not, again, don't go out and say this to your kids, I'm not recommending it, but... She did say this after she taught them the gospel and the Bible. She said, if you don't repent and believe the gospel, that the judgment day I will amen your damnation. Haven't your mother do that? What did she mean? You got the gospel. You got it from me. You're raised in a Christian home. You've got no excuse. Now that's pretty severe. Not saying we copy that. Example, she was a rather severe lady. <laughs> but it does say the church will judge the world, 1 Corinthians 6, 2. What does that mean? It means we will be at the judgment. We will be at the great white throne, not in front of it, behind it with Jesus. Wherever he is, we're going to be. We will see everybody in this life that we've seen before. We will be there when everyone we've witnessed to is there. And our presence will be there for that purpose. I sent you these Christians, and you ignored their message. You've got no excuse. 
the Lord points to some people to deal with other people. Remember John Luke seven forty four. See this woman? <laughs> here's what she did and here's what you did. Or the parable of the two sons or the sheep and goats. Here's what they did. Here's what you did. The ministry of the Lord Jesus requires a response. And light not only has to be lit, it has to be received in the eye. There is accountability. You say, well, I'm too guilty. I'm too depraved. I'm... No, you're still accountable. <laughs> you, can't, you can't get out of that. You can't get out of that. So examination, exhilaration, exaltation, and exclusion. And if it, it, it was a blessing for me as a young man to sit out communion. I'm there. The cup passed. I just passed the bread. I needed that. I need it every time it happened. I'm not trying to make anybody's conscience go in overdrive. I am trying to say, may God give you His dealings with you this morning. And those of us that partake are not partaking because we're better than other people. We realize we're worse than other people. We're just saved by the blood of the Lamb. We don't want to engage in an empty ceremony. We are examining ourselves. We say, well, I've blown it this week again, like I've blown it last, last time. But I have confessed it. I am saved. I'm trying to live for the Lord. I'm exhilarated to be here. I'm exhilarated to hear the Word. I'm exhilarated by the Savior. I want to exalt Him. And boy, I don't, I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve to take this bread. I don't deserve to take this cup. But there's nobody on this planet that does. And I'm saved by the blood of the Lord. If you don't know the Lord as your Savior, maybe today would be the day God would speak to your heart. Maybe right now. Right now. And you would say to the Lord, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I've sinned. I failed you. Save me for Jesus' sake, who died for me and rose again. I want to be able to celebrate Him and exalt Him and and be exhilarated by His Word and exhilarated by who He is. Father, we thank You. For what we've looked at today, challenge us with this truth that we've looked at. None of us are worthy, uh, but we can honor you in a worthy way. And that word worldly is an adverb. It's not an adjective. If it was an adjective, we could never partake. It's an adverb. It's describing how we do it as we seek to honor that one and enjoy that one who died for us, who rose again and rose again. Search our hearts, and may Jesus have the glory, and may we have the good. In his name we pray. Amen.